Don't you love a steaming cup of hot coffee? When you sip on that coffee and say, hmm, this is good, what are you saying? The plastic bag that contains the beans are good. The beans themselves are good. Hot water is good. A coffee filter is good. No, none of these. You see, good happens when the ingredients are worked together. The bag opened, beans poured into powder, water heated to the right temperature. It's the collective cooperation of the elements that creates good. Scripture tells us that God works all things for good for those who love Him. Now, nothing in the Bible would cause us to call a pandemic good, or a heart attack good, or a terrorist attack good. These are terrible calamities born out of a fallen earth. Yet every message in the Bible, from the story of Moses in the wilderness, to Joseph in the pit, to Jesus in the grave, compels us to believe that God will mix them with other ingredients and bring good out of them. But we must let God define good. Our definition includes health, promotion, and recognition. His definition? Well, in the case of Jesus Christ, the good life consisted of struggle and storms and death, but God worked it all together for the greatest of good, His glory and our salvation. In the midst of pain and tragedy, we want to ask why. And in return, God asks us to trust Him. It's not always what we want to hear, but if He gave us an answer, what makes us think we would understand it? Might the problem be less God's plan and more our limited perspective? Suppose the wife of George Frederick Handel came upon the page of her husband's famous oratorio, The Messiah. The entire work was over a hundred pages long. Imagine she discovered one measure of one page on the kitchen table, and on it, her husband had written only one measure in a minor key, one that didn't work on its own. And suppose that she, armed with this fragment of dissonance, marched into his studio and said, this music makes no sense. You're a lousy composer. What would he think? Well, perhaps something similar to what God thinks when we do the same. We point to our minor key. This makes no sense. This is a mistake. Could it be possible that we're not privy to the full composition, but only a limited measure? Well, we may not know or understand everything that happens in life, but one thing we can know for sure, God works all things for good for those who love Him. In the midst of tragedy, we can trust that we serve a good God who promises to take our pain and orchestrate it into something beautiful in the end. We can trust that He is busy behind the scenes, above the fray, within the fury. He hasn't checked out or moved on. He is ceaseless and tireless. He never stops working. Not for our comfort or pleasure or entertainment, but for our ultimate good. And since He is the ultimate good, would we expect anything less? God works not through a few things or through the good things, or the best things, or the easy things, but in all things, God works for those who love Him. This is an amazing promise. Are the ingredients of your life thrown together without a care? Hardly. 
You are the masterpiece of the Creator. Puppet in the hands of fortune or, or fate, not you. You are in the hands of a living, loving God. Random collection of disconnected short stories, far from it. Your life is a crafted narrative written by a good God who is working toward your supreme good. We may not understand why we walk through certain things in life, but one thing we can know for sure, God is good and he is working all things together for good. Because of this, we can trust him through the tragedy. We can rise up and say with confidence, we will get through this because we serve a God who is alive, a God who cares. In the days leading up to World War II with Germany, the British government commissioned a series of encouraging posters to be printed and distributed throughout the country. Capital letters and bold typeface were used and a simple two-color format was selected. The only graphic was the crown of King George VI. The first poster read, Your courage, your cheerfulness, your resolution will bring us victory. Soon thereafter, a second poster was distributed, Freedom is in peril, defend it with all your might. These two posters appeared up and down the British countryside, on railroad platforms and in pubs and stores and restaurants. They were everywhere. A third poster was created, yet never distributed. More than 2.5 million copies were printed and yet never seen until 60 years later when a bookstore owner in Northeast England discovered one in a box of old books he had purchased in an auction. The poster bore the same crown and style of the first two posters, and it read, Keep calm and carry on. The bookstore owner framed it and hung it on the wall, and it became so popular that the bookstore began producing identical images of the original design on coffee mugs and postcards and posters. Everyone, it seems, appreciated the reminder from another generation to keep calm and carry on in the face of adversity. Our world seems a little out of control right now, doesn't it? With the pandemic, it seems that everything we've trusted in has been shaken. But God invites you to stay calm and trust in Him. The scripture says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. We have to relinquish our fear and anxiety to God. The more we try to control the world, the more we realize we cannot. And life becomes a cycle of anxiety, failure, anxiety, failure, anxiety, failure. We can't take control because control is not ours to take. The Bible has a better idea. Rather than seeking total control, relinquish it. You can't run the world, but you can entrust it to God. This is the message behind Paul's admonition to rejoice in the Lord. Peace is within reach, but not for lack of problems, but because of the presence of a sovereign Lord. So rather than rehearse the chaos of the world, rejoice in the Lord's sovereignty. As Paul did, he wrote, 
The things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. Like Paul, dare to trust that good things will happen. Dare to believe that God was speaking to you when he said, in everything God works for the good of those who love him. The mind cannot at the same time be full of God and be full of fear. The scripture says, he will keep in perfect peace all those who trust in him, whose thoughts turn often to the Lord. Has worry kept you up at night? Are you constantly keeping one eye on the news and one eye on everything else? Maybe it's time to trust God. Rejoice in the Lord's sovereignty. I dare you. I double dog dare you to expose your worries to an hour of worship. Your concerns will melt like ice on a July sidewalk. You see, the mind cannot at the same time be full of God and full of fear. Anxiety passes as trust increases. Scripture says, blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. They will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when intense heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. While we can social distance and wash our hands all we want, Ultimately, we have to realize we can't control everything. We can't control the weather. We aren't in charge of the economy. We can't undo a tornado, unwreck the car, or hold back the virus. But we can do this. We can stop worrying, stay calm, and believe that with His help, we will get through this. It won't be painless. It won't be quick. But God will use this mess for good. Don't be foolish or naive, but don't despair either. With God's help, you will get through this. Audacious of me, right? How dare I say such words? Where did I get the nerve to speak such a promise into tragedy? In a pit, actually, a deep, dark pit. So steep the boy could not climb out. Had he been able to, his, his brothers would have shoved him back down. They were the ones who threw him in. And so it came to pass when Joseph had come to his brothers that they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the tunic of many colors that was on him. Then they took him and cast him into a pit, and the pit was empty, and there was no water in it, and they sat down to eat a meal. It's an abandoned cistern. Jagged rocks and roots extend from its side. The 17-year-old boy lies at the bottom. His eyes are wide with fear. His voice is hoarse from screaming. It's not that the brothers don't hear him. 20 years from now, when a famine has tamed their swagger and guilt has dampened their pride, they will confess, we saw the anguish of his soul when he pleaded with us, and we would not hear. These are the great-grandsons of Abraham, the sons of Jacob, couriers of God's covenant to a, a galaxy worth of people. Yet today, they are the Bronze Age version of a dysfunctional family. In the shadow of a sycamore, in the earshot of Joseph's appeals, 
the brothers chew on venison and pass the wineskin. They despised the boy. The scripture says they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. They hated him even more. They hated him. His brothers envied him. Here's why. Their father pampered Joseph like a prized calf, and they were jealous. The brothers caught Joseph far from home, 50 miles away from daddy's protection, and they went nuclear on him. They stripped Joseph of his tunic, and they took him and cast him into a pit. Now, Joseph didn't see this assault coming. He didn't climb out of bed that morning and think, well, I guess I, I better dress in padded clothing because this is the day I get tossed in a hole. The attack caught him off guard. So did yours. At Joseph's pit came in the form of a cistern. Yours came in the form of a virus, a layoff, a breakdown. Joseph was thrown into a hole and despised, and you thrown into an unemployment line and forgotten, into quarantined and neglected, into a, a bed and abused, the pit. Joseph's story got worse before it got better. Abandonment led to enslavement, entrapment, and imprisonment. He was sucker punched, he was sold out, he was mistreated. People made promises only to break them, offered gifts only to take them. If hurt is a swampland, then Joseph was sentenced to a life of hard labor in the Everglades. Yet he never gave up. Bitterness never staked its claim. Anger never metastasized into hatred. His heart never hardened. His resolve never vanished. He not only survived, he thrived. He ascended like a helium balloon. An Egyptian official promoted him to chief servant. The prison warden placed Joseph over the inmates. And Pharaoh, the highest ruler on the planet, shoulder-tapped Joseph to serve as his prime minister. By the end of his life, Joseph was the second most powerful man of his generation. It, it's not hyperbole to state that he saved the world from starvation. Now how? How did he flourish in the midst of such tragedy? Well, we don't have to speculate. Some 40 years later, the, the roles were reversed and Joseph was the strong one and his brothers were the weak ones and they came to him in dread. They feared he would settle the score and throw them into a pit of his own making. But Joseph didn't and his explanation <laughs> becomes our inspiration. Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. Joseph viewed the sufferings of his life through the lens of divine providence. Can I encourage you to do the same? Keep a but God in the center of this story. The company is downsizing, but God is still sovereign. The sickness is back, but God still occupies the throne. I was an anxious, troubled soul, but God has been giving me courage. The brothers had every intention to harm Joseph, but God in his providence used their intended evil 
for ultimate good. You see, God uses all things to bring about His purpose. The ultimate proof of providence is the death of Christ on the cross. No deed was more evil. No other day was so dark. As Peter told the murderers, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Everyone thought the life of Jesus was over, but God. His son was dead and buried, but God raised him from the dead. God took the crucifixion of Friday and turned it into the celebration of Sunday. Could he not do a reversal for you? I'm sorry for the pain that life is giving you. I'm sorry that you ended up here in Egypt. But if the story of Joseph teaches us anything, it is this, we have a choice. We can wear our hurt or wear our hope. We can cave into the pandemonium of life or we can lean into the perfect plan of God. Do what Joseph did. Keep God in the center of your struggle. You meant evil against me, but God intended it for good. Evil, God, good. Now how? How do we do this? Well, I think we lay claim to the nearness of God. Hebrews 13 and verse 5 says, Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. In this great promise from God in the Greek scripture, this passage has five negatives, and it could be translated, I will not not leave you, neither will I not not forsake you. God is making a point. He will not leave us. Now grip this promise like the parachute it is. Repeat it to yourself over and over and over until it outranks the voices of fear and angst. Now don't equate the presence of God with a good mood or a pleasant temperament. God is near whether you're happy or not. And sometimes you got to take your feelings outside, just give them a good talking to. Here's something else. Cling to his character. Quarry from your Bible a list of deep qualities of God and press them into your heart. My list reads something like this. Well, God is still sovereign. He still knows my name. Angels still respond to his call. The hearts of rulers still bend at his bidding. The death of Jesus still saves souls. The Spirit of God still indwells saints. Heaven is still only heartbeats away. The grave is still temporary housing. God is still faithful. He's not caught off guard. He uses everything for His glory and my ultimate good. He uses tragedy to accomplish His will, and His will is right and holy and perfect. Yeah, sorrow may come with the night, but joy comes with the morning. In changing times, Lay hold of the unchanging character of God. And most of all, just turn to Jesus. In his fine book entitled The Dance of Hope, Bill Fry remembers the day that he tried to pull a stump out of the Georgia dirt. He was 11 years old at the time. One of his chores was the gathering of firewood for the small stove and fireplace of the homestead. He would search the woods for stumps of pine trees that had been cut down and chop them into kindling. 
The best tubs were saturated with resin and therefore would burn more easily. On one occasion, he found a stump in a field near the house and he set out to unearth it. He pushed and pulled for hours. The root system was so deep he couldn't pull it out. After some time, his father saw him working and walked over to watch. I think I see your problem, he said. What's that, Bill asked. You're not using all of your strength. Well, Bill erupted and told his dad how long and hard he had worked. Oh no, he explained. You're not using all your strength. You haven't asked me to help you yet, said the father. This business of facing our fears is like pulling stumps out of the ground. And some of your worries have deep root systems. And extracting them, well, it's hard, hard work. In fact, it may be the toughest challenge of all. But you don't have to do it alone. Present the challenge to your father. Ask for help. Will he solve the issue? Yes, he will. Will he solve it immediately? Maybe. Or maybe part of the test is an advanced course in patience. This unprecedented opportunity is your time to draw near to God. He loves you, my friend. Many people are turning to God for the first time. Might you be one of them? Here's what God has done for you. In the person of Jesus Christ, he lived a perfect life, but died a sinner's death. He took our place on the cross. He died for our sins and he rose from the dead. His resurrection is proof that he has power over sin and death. He wants you to spend forever with him, beginning today and continuing into eternity. Take him up on that offer, won't you? Take him up on his amazing grace.